All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We will welcome you all back to the Gate 15 Nerd Out podcast where security experts come together. Uh, I'm lumping myself into that security expert part because I host the show, but um, we all come together to discuss the latest security issues facing individuals and corporations. I, of course, am Dave Pounder, and today I'm fortunate to be joined by another great panel. Um, but before I get into that and our, all of our topics, I do want to note that I want to thank all our listeners out there because we did uh, bus past our record number of listens for last month, and things are definitely on the up and up. So let's, uh, no pressure on you guys. So, you know, you got to bring in some more listeners. And, and like I said, we are joined by a great panel today. So I want to welcome in our first guest, Joe Levy. So Joe, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Dave. Um, I'm actually uh, thrilled to be here uh, joining you, uh, Bridget and Travis. Um, uh, I currently chair the Venue Safety Security Committee for the International Association of Venue Managers. Um, I've been on that particular committee now for a few years. And uh, if you're aware of IVM, um, it's a it's a membership organization representing uh, venue managers of all types, uh, of all sector types uh, globally. I think they're just over 7,000 members, uh, IAVM.org. And um, we, uh, among many things, uh, we take the safety and security of our venues very, very seriously. So uh, my particular committee uh, is uh, trying to tackle, uh, obviously, the addition of COVID uh, to a myriad of things that venue managers already worry about. Uh, certainly an important thing, but it's not the only thing we worry about. Uh, so this next year or so, my committee is going to try to figure out how we uh, overlay COVID uh, procedures uh, into our existing um, operation plans. So thanks for having me. Yeah, so being all sports fans and everything here, no pressure to make sure you get this thing right, okay, Joe? I mean, just make <laughs> sure make sure we can get sports back in together, right? So. Agreed. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining, Joe. So, Travis, uh, you're up next. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here as usual. Um, it's Travis Moran, uh, Vice President with Welland, and Welland provides geopolitical risk uh, assessment, threat, and mitigation options and awareness, situational awareness for uh, companies and clients around the globe. And again, uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, thank, thanks, Travis. So always welcome here. I'm glad to have you back on board. And and now the uh, uh, our Bridget Johnson. So Bridget, welcome back. Hey guys. Uh, yeah, I'm Bridget Johnson. I'm managing editor at Homeland Security Today. I'm also a terrorism analyst and a security consultant. So, so we've got all the right people on here today, and and but and we've got a lot of topics to get into. But we we have been you know talking about this the last couple of months, uh, leading up to professional football. Uh, we're two weeks in. Uh, college football is kind of starting too. How how do we feel generally about our our, our respective teams? I, I know we're Bridget's Alliance's lead. Um, <laughs> I'm wearing I'm uh, I'm wearing a blue shirt for my Cowboys who came back from a insurmountable lead uh, last week and I'm waiting for Penn State football to kick off at the end of uh, October so you know how do we feel today any any anyone want to kick off there well first I wish that I could actually watch a game but the East Coast market thought that Tom Brady's new team and the Steelers are more important <laughs> the past two weeks than my 49ers so uh, but I mean, how awesome it would be to actually be one of those very socially distanced fans. I'm talking about like nobody else in your section. 
Uh, so I would go for that, but I probably wouldn't go for any of the, of the other COVID uh, alterations that they're trying right now. Yeah, it does look very appealing to be able to sit there with a lot of elbow room, a lot of leg space. You know, it's, it's not too bad. Travis, what, what, what do you got? Are you looking forward to OSU football or are you, uh, you uh, Joe Burrow's uh, Cincinnati guy? So I don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> I've, I, I, I have been tweeting miserably, admittedly, towards the, all the, the networks about the fake crowd noise because it just doesn't work for me when, <laughs> when the stands are empty and they're just putting that stuff on there. Like, it is what it is. We, we, we're grownups. We can just deal with it. Um, the, the Big Ten, obviously, has, has been a, a uh, case study uh, for management professionals going forward because no one really knows what has happened, how it happened, how it went forward between the other leagues. Um, so it, it's interesting, but obviously always happy to see, see the Buckeyes back. As far as the Bengals go, I said all along that uh, we love Joe Burrow and he should have pulled an Eli Manning and just said no. <laughs> just said no because the poor kid we hope he stays alive I mean it's just ooh, it's rough to watch but he's he's talented we hope the best for him they, they, there you go yeah I, I'll tell you I kind of like the um you know the no crowd I like hearing the the action on the field I like to hear the players talk I love to hear especially right. in baseball when I'm watching that I I do enjoy that I, so I I wish the fake crowd noise you know, and in baseball, they were doing with fake fans in there, and not even the cardboard cutouts, but they're actually putting graphics of fans in the stands sometimes. I, I don't know about that. So, um, what, what about you, Joe? Where do you fall in on, on all this? Well, I'm a Giants fan, so we're not really off to a great start. <laughs> but uh, uh, Met, Met Life Stadium, she looked beautiful on TV, and even with the absence of fans, uh, it was just really great to see activity. Uh, you know, the world is responding uh, as they are and as we are sort of disconnected, like there, as we all know, there's not a concerted effort to come together across industries, sectors, et cetera. So it's a little bit of a Wild West response to this. And um, uh, I'm thrilled that we've started. Something has happened. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged at where we're going, not where we are at the moment, but we're going to get there. Well, so let, let's get into it then. I mean, you're talking about that, Joe, and um, we'll put you on the hot spot here first, but um, there are a lot of things going on. I mean, fans, different leagues have different um, things that they're implementing. Um, we have venue, different states are implementing other things, even within the same state. The, yesterday, you know, in Florida, you, you've got Miami's got fans, but Tampa Bay has no fans. So you have a lot of different venues are, are using different local and, and state guidance. You know, wh what does that landscape look like right now for venues? And, and for those that are got the fans, you know, coming to the venues, and this is going to be more and more with, with football and college football, um, what, what does that look like? What, what is the impact that COVID, what are the additional COVID measures that are being taken into place now at these venues? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. So, you know, you, you just identified what I personally believe, and obviously the, these are my opinions. I'm not speaking on behalf of IVM. I'm speaking on behalf of myself. Um, I think that's part of the challenge that we have is that in one state, in one county, you might have two venues that have drastically different uh, response uh, to COVID. And whether it be with or without fans or uh, masks, uh, how stringent they are with enforcement, cleanliness, 
Uh, you know, are they, there, is there a robot coming by and shining a UV light on your seat before you take it? Are they disinfecting the, the restrooms between guests? It's all over the place. And we're, my biggest concern is that there's a little bit of like a hygiene theater happening and some people are um, in a vacuum addressing it um, different than their constituents or colleagues throughout the industry. And it's irrespective of, of sector, whether it be sports or the Performing Arts Center, the arena, the convention center, we're all venues and we're all welcoming or trying to welcome people, uh, public assembly into our venues and we want them to feel safe and secure. So it's challenging when, you know, venue A down the street, the, the stadium uh, lets in 25% capacity and then a few miles away, they let in no uh, guests whatsoever. Uh, how do you reconcile the two? You know, it's the same science but we have a lot of people at play and uh, personalities and preference, uh, I think unfortunately is detracting from us all coming together, bringing the best minds together and coming out with a collective um, best practice for all of us. Uh, the virus doesn't care if you're a football fan or a, or a convention center participant or a visitor. So um, that's, my, that's my concern. That's what I'm seeing throughout the entire uh, venue management industry is that, there's not one set of rules that we're playing by. Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting. I think it, because of the the variant, and I and I don't want to politicize any of the the decisions that are being made. We we all know that that does unfortunately play a factor. Um, but depending on what parts of the the country you may be in, may have a different view of of we need to just plow through this and we need to keep working through this or other ones are saying, no, I, I mean, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to go and expose myself, even if we are socially distanced apart, even if we are wearing masks. Travis, wh where where do you fall in, you know, on, you know, the various venues? And, and again, we're not just talking strictly sports venues. We're talking, you know, convention centers, you know, are there, there going to be conferences that are now going to start up that are more or less not, not just strictly virtual, but in person? Are there going to be concerts? We know cinema, you know, movie theaters are, you, you saw the big tenant releases, it must be seen in a movie theater type of quotes. How comfortable do you feel going to these things? And do you think the, the country at large is, is ready to jump back in uh, going back to these venues? Well, I think Joe had a, um, a good quote there of hygiene theater and that so much of this is about knowing your client base, um, right? And it, it, there's, there are regional differences here. Uh, they obviously have come into play with the venue management on just on, on collegiate sports and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, political differences within the regions, obviously, you know, we have places in the, in the north whereby, you know, you have to quarantine if you come in. Um, it's, it's, it's messy. And, you know, Joe was talking about the same science. I don't even think there's agreement anymore on same science because sure. it, the, the messaging is just so literally people ask us all the time. And we put out a, a quarterly thing on this. What do we, we don't know what to believe anymore. Who, who, who do we believe? And I think that gets at a crux of what's underpinned a lot of this uh, uncertainty is that, there is so much uncertainty because it is new. So given those pieces, I think that where is a security director 
uh, in concert with your management team. I think it, for, for these venues, and there's just a big thing about that movie we're talking about, uh, uh, whereby people weren't, didn't come back and they are losing a lot of money. And you know, Hollywood is still betting very heavily that if they will come back, I think the research is going to tell us in the next couple of months, hopefully, of you know what knowing your client base in your individual market is going to drive both what you try to do and how you try to protect it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is such a. I mean, we're in uncharted waters. As much as we want to to say, uh, you know, this is the absolute truth. We all know that there's messaging out there that is running contrary, and it, and it does. You almost have to turn off the, um, the the TV. You have to get off social media. You have to get off of your your various platforms because you need to take a break. It's so overwhelming and. And unfortunately, we're in the middle of an election cycle where it's, we're being hit with this every single minute. And I do want to talk about the elections in a minute because I think it's going to be interesting how these venues are going to be adapted and used. But, but Bridget, you know, when, when we traditionally think about some, some of the biggest terrorism incidents um, over the last 10 years or so, um, you go back to a couple of places in... Um, in France, uh, in the mid, you know, 2010s, you have the Charlie Hebdo uh, attack. You have the other uh, Paris co uh, complex coordinated terrorist attack where they went into concert halls. They tried to go to the soccer stadium. You have a lot of the other, um, you have the holiday markets that are coming up that we're going to talk about here in a minute. What does that look like? You know, what types of considerations are going to have to be made as we're opening up venues, even if it's at a, at a you know, fraction of the, the normal capacity, are, are we, are, are, do we need to be concerned? And, and if so, to what degree? So I was actually um, sitting and thinking, okay, so out of the, the COVID alterations for different types of venues, you know, what is something that was coming across as attractive as something that looked like it was actually kind of working. So, and I like the idea of driving events, how people have been doing that for concerts or this year, political convention, et cetera. Um, it still has that old school feel of community while well, you still have privacy, the comforts of your own car. And if done as designed, it's good pandemic control. But that still requires either a lot of event staff, staff who don't have additional COVID risk factors or exceptional discipline from patrons to not be out mingling. But since I'm a big security dork, I'd also be red teaming the security challenges this prevents in, presents in other respects. How much easier would it be to be smuggling a firearm into a crowded event if you're taking in an entire vehicle instead of just your purse? You know, what is the potential for smuggling in a vehicle-borne IED into an open-air festival like terror groups have previously talked about in propaganda? And I know I'm like a total buzzkill with that, but, um, but this would also, you know, there, there's also worry about how these groups and individuals who um, are acting out of um, loyalty to a certain ideology are going to adapt to COVID security protocols. And these protocols might involve, you know, cutting down on personal contact, et cetera. And it's also of note that ISIS supporters 
um, namely through the Voice of Hind magazine that was put out by ISIS supporters in India, encouraged ISIS loyalists who do have COVID to go into crowds. So you basically now have a bioterror threat as well. But that's yeah, an interesting well bio threat, right? Because it's it's in the person. Yeah. Yeah. No. Go ahead, Joe. I mean, I, I think you're hitting on. I mean, that's something that's always been out there when we talked about bioterrorism. Not necessarily those anthrax-related attacks, but but more so this. Hey, I'm I'm contaminated with X disease that's very highly. Um, contagious, and now I'm going to go into a venue where I'm elbow to elbow with 25,000 people. I think that's always something within venue security that we've always had to consider. Anything else on that front, Joe? Well, you know, Bridget, of course, nailed every one of my biggest fears, especially as many venue operators, especially those with real estate, you know, parking lots or big fields uh, adjacent to their venues where they can actually, you know, repurpose uh, that that sort of bulk square footage to have some form of an event. Um, you have a staff that's sort of trained and used to securing and making safety inside of the venue. Um, you now have to sort of exercise a different muscle when you're when you're totally changing the plan. Of course, you can bring in consultants and you can bring in people who are uh, you know who specialize in that particular outdoor environment. For you know, for instance, as Bridget. Uh, uh, said, uh, you know, how difficult would it be to search a vehicle for a firearm or an IED, et cetera. So you bring in talented outside people, but you still, for the most part, have your core team that's going to be, um, you know, implementing your safety and security procedures that are not well trained in that particular area because they've not exercised in this particular area before. Obviously, I'm making a gross generalization. Um, but then when you do talk about bringing someone in um, and, and sort of the bio, uh, the bio threat of someone who's highly contagious and even just getting into any closed door environment, uh, you know, it, a lot of venues are doing the temperature check where they're just detecting for elevated body temp. And um, that's easy, easy science to circumvent, right? 20 minutes before I queue up, I pop three or four Advil. It's very likely that my, um, my core body temperature is going to go down or pack the back of my neck with some ice, et cetera. There are ways to circumvent it. And I answer all of your questions uh, to, to, the, to, the, the, uh, to the affirmative. You know, are you, are you feeling well? Yes. Uh, have you been in contact with someone? No, et cetera. So um, it is very easy to get into our venues uh, under false pretenses and spread uh, COVID. So it's, um, I think it's up to, I, I really love the phrase that uh, Bridget used, which was uh, sort of the discipline of the the crowd because i really think that's the epicenter of how we're going to uh, circumvent the real problems behind COVID. it's not sanitizing every square inch of my venue because the likeliness of interacting with this particular disease on the ceiling is nil um but it's very likely that i'm going to come next to someone in the crowd who is not wearing a mask that's actually effective you know they're wearing a mask that's thin or has that side port without a filter so they're literally breathing out what they should be containing um, so I'm a little bit more uh, concerned about the, the the actual discipline of the guest that more than I am concerned with the actual um, COVID-19. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a lot of, I mean, it's, it's considerations we really haven't had to take in before. You know, we've always been so concerned about, you know, it, you know, suspicious behaviors and indicators of you know, bringing a package in an explosive device, you know, the Manchester bombing um, it, back a couple of years back and, and or a weapon or, or a vehicle attack outside of a venue 
which the venues have really been strengthening over the last couple of years with um, the with bollards and th those type of things. But it is a really different type of approach. I, I want to look ahead now here, just using this same thought process as we start seeing venues move to, you know, facilitating um, the election, the upcoming election here in, in November. Obviously, if, if you haven't been, you know, head in the sand or anything, you know that there's a presidential election in the United States. And, and we also know that um, a lot of these sports venues are now being used to not only register voters beforehand, but are also going to be used to actually be big voting precincts. Um, and, and we're, we're typically used to, you know, the library or the community center or the school that's been done. But now we have these um, locations, sometimes in downtown areas, sometimes not um, or very easily accessible by a lot of people. Um, they can hold a lot of people and, and we expect a higher voter turnout this year. Tra Travis, as, as we look ahead to that type of um, of the to the election, what what type of things concern you, or or are there any concerns from that front um, with these venues now being adapted to hold, uh, I guess, different types of uh, of events? Well, I guess the, I'm going to think of this in a disruption construct. And what I mean by that is the, the, the pre-attack cycle intelligence piece. Um, you know, if you can disrupt or identify in the pre-attack cycle phase, you've, you know, you have a great chance to be, a better chance, obviously, to be successful. And there's innumerable threats, unfortunately, that are going forward about this. You know, we're picking up signals on you know, extremist groups. We're picking on both the left and the right and, and, and plans for disruption. Um, and that's not even taken into account, obviously, the, the area that Bridget specializes in the terrorism. So, you know, any opportunity for disruption um, and to on both sides and then from disruption to disinformation uh, prior and part of that disruption it's, is going to be something that we're we're seeing a lot of momentum towards already. Um, the the passing of uh, of Ginsburg did not help that. Um, it's it's exacerbated the noise that's out there right now. And and parsing through that, the data points are just overwhelming. So, if I was a you know, a venue, I would be I would seriously engage with my law enforcement partners on the intel side. I mean, you know, a lot of them have their own intel analysts and whatnot, but a lot of them don't. And you need to make them aware of to start looking for these signals ahead of time um, so that they can at, at least be a partner with you, uh, you know, weeks, you know, it's more 40, what, 44 days out, something like that. Uh, they, it should be already done, to be quite honest. Yeah, I, it's very, the disruption piece is very interesting because one of the things I, I can see is, you know, with all these protest movements, ongoing and, and while they've kind of fallen off the front page um, there's also the uh, ability for them to, to the, the fire to be you know lit really quick uh, in a short amount of time and and when you look at you know the voter turnout um, opportunities the type of locations where some of these venues are going to be at to, you know Bridget I, looking at where you know from your perspective now 
shifting to the extremism in the extremist groups and maybe some of these uh, ultra left and ultra right side um, groups, do you see the, you know, these election venues to be almost like a battle point um, or the next engagement area for some of these conflicts, you know, as in the, in the, the run up to it, um, maybe disrupting things, making it seem less secure. And then, and then in, during the day of the election to really be starting out maybe as a low scale protest, but then escalating quickly throughout the day. What do you think about that? So I think this past weekend, we actually got a little sample of what can happen even if you have the best laid plans at the polling station. So over here in Fairfax County, um, you probably saw in the news on the first day of early voting, um, there was like a four hour line um, and, and you looked at it and everything was according to pandemic protocol. You know, there were, there was social distancing outside, everybody was wearing masks. Um, I have a theory that out here in the DC suburbs, people are really good about masks because it's a GovCon area. So people aren't complaining about emergency management as much as some other places. Um, but so you had everybody doing what they're supposed to, waiting in this very long line to early vote. And so everything was going well. And then the next day you had a group of protesters show up. Um, and so the, 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 the protesters at one point, they were blocking um, a vehicular entrance into the county government center. Um, some of them were not wearing masks. They were not social distancing. Um, at some points they were getting close to the people who were voting. And so for fears of voter intimidation and poll worker intimidation and other things, then they started moving these voters who had been standing outside perfectly socially distanced um, inside the building. And so it was kind of showing how, you know, you can have it planned out to the letter to affect good pandemic control, um, to have good security control. But if you have a wrench thrown into the machine, you better be ready to adjust and adjust quickly. And those adjustments may not leave the voters and the poll workers as safe as you would hope they have been, they would have been before. Um, and this was a case of early voting, you know, and you already had people waiting in line for a few hours in the DC suburbs at a very well staffed polling station at the county government center. So I think if you kind of extrapolate that to some other areas in the country that might be more restive, um, that might have a greater chance of extremist activity, um, and that might have more problems with polling stations in terms of both um, uh, pandemic safety and security and staffing, then you can kind of see what we might be headed for. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of these little flashpoints. It, it has the potential to really escalate quickly. Um, Joe, Joe, just to wrap up some of this discussion about the venues, if you were out there now, you know, to, to advise security managers at these venues, um, what is the area that you'd be focusing on right now? I mean, you're, again, we're, you know, 45 days, 40 some odd days out from the elections right now. We've got the holidays coming up where we are going to see a little bit more increased activities. People are going to want to get outside and celebrate um, and, and, and push through it. 
what what are what would be some of the key considerations you'd want you know these security managers to take into account? I think Travis said it uh, best, which is you really need to partner with your local law enforcement. They're going to have access to uh, some really good intelligence that as a venue manager, you may not have absolute direct connect uh, to. So you really wanna uh, lean on your partnerships uh, as best you can. And that's not just your sort of PD, that could also be your DHS representative or your JTTF representative, depending on uh, what area of the country you're in and what agency, uh, you know, alphabet soup for all of us, of course. Um, but really, especially as we're discussing uh, voting, that's going to be the next big hotbed, uh, every venue that's uh, connected to it. And that could be your local volunteer ambulance corps that's uh, housing an election up to including very large stadiums, uh, m m more square footage, more problems. So being prepared, you know, and I'm going to say something and any venue manager listening is going to say, yes, of course, that's what we do. Um, but you have to be prepared for any eventuality. Um, in venue management, uh, like a lot of our industries, you plan, 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 and then the last thing you do before you get going is you throw out that plan because, as Bridget said, you, one wrench will totally upset everything that you've been prepping for. So you have to be prepared for uh, curveballs because they are going to happen. Uh, bad actors are going to try to infiltrate peaceful uh, queuing, um, and you know we can think of a million ways to disrupt um, uh, an already sort of um, hot hot emotional uh, time in this country uh, leading up to this particular election, whether you're on the left side or the right side, uh, there's lots of anxiety about what's to come. Uh, so I would say you've got to partner with the people who have access to the information and know how to decipher it and help you prepare for it. Mitigating this risk, we're not going to be able to eliminate it. Um, and being prepared for um, <laughs> a wild ride, because that is certainly coming. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it, and again, I, I, I know you said some things where, you know, that venues managers should be aware of it. I tell you, it just can't be, um, it can't be repeated enough, in my opinion. You can never hear it too many times. It's really important to go back all over these things because you get so fixated on certain elements that you may overlook mm -hmm. some of the basics. And it's really important. I mean, thanks for really stressing those areas. Um, Travis, I'm going to jump next two topics just real quick to, to you and then to Bridget. Um, just referencing about drones. L last week, I, I forwarded you an item, um, you know, talking about recognizing malicious modifications within drones. Um, anything in there, you know, this was something we talked about um, a couple months back, and, and it is something that I think drone activity. I'm, I'm surprised we haven't seen more of it, but there are some constraints within the United States, as you had noted then, that aren't necessarily there overseas and it makes it more permissible overseas. But it's still important, you know, as we're doing these, as we're seeing these protests and as we're gonna get ready for the election cycle and these outdoor events and venues and, and such, what, what are some of the things within this, this report, this malicious modifications, a survey that, that are kind of worth pulling out for people to understand? Well, you're going to have to, well, first of all, it would be publication and dissemination. Um, you know, I, I, that's the, that's the biggest piece so that all the, you know, state and local law enforcement could have it as well. And, and quite honestly, federal law enforcement, um, because they need to understand what the, um, what those modifications look like, 
uh, again, for these type of uh, hybrid vehicles once they're once they're manipulated. So when you have the rotary release points and so on and so forth, um, it do, it won't take much to panic a crowd, regardless of whether the substance is inert or active. Um, you know, for example, even explosives, they're not going to be able to carry much because of weight constraints, but still it, it just doesn't take much. You know, it can be firecrackers for that, for that construct. The bigger issue again, is that there's just, it's so complex and convoluted about how to understand what is out there and conversely also expensive. There's no way you're going to be able to, 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 to cover all these particular venues um, with, with that kind of anti-drone technology. Cause quite honestly, so much of it exists on the, on the military side when you're talking about mitigation. Awareness side, there's stuff out there, plenty of stuff on the commercial market. Some's great, some's average. It, it, it just, it's all over the place. Um, you know, Joe was talking about MetLife, and I, I, you know, very familiar with them, as a matter of fact, in this particular construct. And a lot of the venues are, are, are trying to experiment, experiment and, and figure this particular threat vector out themselves. It's not easy. It's prohibited uh, in a lot of ways due to regulation. Um, so for a long answer to that question, unfortunately, but it really is going to rely on understand again, pre-attack intelligence, being able to understand because it's, it's so much comes down to intent with regard to drones. I mean, you can't really do anything unless you can prove intent, unless you have a certain designation under DHS, the FBI. Um, and so it's a complicated question. I wish I had a better answer for you. No, I, I think it's a complicated problem set to be truth. I mean, I think we're still in that in a lot of ways, most of the general public view drones as a novelty. It's, oh, look at that cool drone up there. I can hear a drone. It sounds a little interesting. Never considering that the, the possible implications of, of one being used for, for nefarious purposes. Well, I mean, I, average Joe does not like drones and we're seeing that more and more. Um, which is really starting to um, imbue the thought process of, of how policy is being derived from the privacy side and how these companies are starting to think about this and understand what the true market is. Uh, the long haul, heavier drones, the MQ-9s and whatnot, they can carry weight uh, from point to point is, is a, a revenue model that works. Uh, the short distance, the noise, the privacy issues are really starting to rear their heads. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think I, I keep waiting for that one moment and, and just haven't seen it yet, but I, I, it's such a real threat that we really need to be on guard. And as it relates to venues, we've seen it over, over the last couple of years uh, in, at this, in San Diego at a baseball game, a, a runaway drone ran into this, you know, it happened to be a relatively empty part of the stadium, but it still ran into the, to the seats and lost control. There's some that have been over other games and, and had to been uh, intercepted in some form or fashion. So I think it's a really interesting dilemma. And it's a, definitely a challenge for security managers to look at. Um, Bridget, let me, let me turn to you on this next one. I mean, we've seen the wildfires um, go like crazy across the West. And two years ago, I wrote up a report on, on you know, the, the California wildfires at that time were the largest in state history. And now we've blown past all of that. Uh, that was in November. We're still in, um, you know, mid-September. We're, we're going very strong all across the West. 
You wrote up a report. Um, you've been following this very closely over the last several years as well, um, mostly as it pertained to the terrorism angle as, uh, in addition. Do you, what can you surmise over what's happening now and how that's being used to fuel um, some of the, these new propaganda things that we've seen online? So uh, there are a couple of, of different uh, angles here. Um, you know, when, when the fires really got going and I was looking at uh, Twitter to get social media updates, and first of all, I saw a handful of Twitter accounts that were posting blatantly erroneous information you know, like declaring that the town of Shaver Lake had been wiped out by the Creek fire. So I studied a couple of these accounts, saw the patterns in their tweets and account information, and these were influence operation accounts. They were tweeting dramatic and wrong info just to scare these poor people who had just evacuated, just to stoke chaos. You know, then you had the, in Oregon, uh, the cases of people who were not evacuating from these very deadly fires because of the fake news that Antifa was coming for their houses, um, you even had armed militias setting up checkpoints and refusing to let people pass in some of those areas. So you had some people deliberately spreading this, this disinformation. You had some who didn't know what they were doing. They were listening to a scanner. They heard BLM and didn't realize that meant Bureau of Land Management uh, spread the disinformation that they thought that they heard. Um, so you've, you've got that element of the wildfires that is a big problem. You know, conspiracy theorists who can't understand why a hot, windy, tinder dry forest would catch fire so fast and would be left dumbfounded if you asked them to explain what a bark beetle infestation is. Um, and then we have the long-standing pattern of terror threats, um, basically tutorials that have been released uh, by both Al-Qaeda and ISIS um, dictating to, uh, to followers or any other stripe of extremist who might manage to get a hold of these publications, um, not only inciting them to use fire as a weapon, um, but instructing them how to do it. And we can't say how many have or have not committed arson terrorism simply because of the nature of wildfires. You know, first you're talking about nearly 46,000 wildfires this year alone. 12% uh, of wildfires have natural causes like lightning. 88% are caused by humans, but that's mainly things like campfires, cigarettes out the window, down power lines, gender reveal fireworks, um, people target shooting, things like that. So one CAL FIRE estimate is that 7% of wildfires are caused by arsonists. Most of those are never caught and most of those are, are serial offenders. So consider those who might try setting delayed release blazes, like with the Al-Qaeda ember bomb recipe, where they're supposed to set them in a remote area, leave the scene before it ignites. Some of these guys aren't the brightest, so you'd have a dead device that doesn't get discovered because no one went to the area because there's no fire. Um, it's hard to believe that with all this incitement, no one's ever tried it, but whether they've been successful is unknown. Um, could some of these guys be among the arsonists never caught? Could they have started blazes that didn't spread because they didn't understand the directions about fire conditions, et cetera? Um, ISIS has shown in the past that it likes to disavow lone jihadists who fail in their missions aka not kill anyone, not destroy anything, or get arrested. So even if an adherent brags to, um, to somebody in ISIS that they're responsible for a one-acre grass fire that singed an outhouse, 
you better believe ISIS is going to pass on claiming that as an attack. They're going to be like, you know, that's sad, try again. And so, and also not all of these terror tips are especially realistic. The Al-Qaeda guide that showed how to make the ember bomb suggested it would be more useful if the perpetrator climbs to the top of a tree to set it off there. And that's obviously not an author who's ever been to the Sierras. Um, one thing that I do think it will become a greater threat is the accelerationist threat, um, being that their whole purpose is to cause chaos and eventual societal downfall through violence. Uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis have called for arson against symbolic targets before, you know, with fiery imagery and much of their propaganda, but an accelerationist could use wildfire arson as an indiscriminate mass casualty attack. Um, though some of these groups live and train or in rural areas, so you would expect them to set fires far from their own compounds if they do. Yeah, there's so much to get into with all of this, with the wildfires. It's a truly tragic situation. God bless the firefighters and all those officials who are out there battling these and and you know, obviously, thinking for all the uh, individuals and, and organizations who are caught up in in all of this is just a, a, a large amount of this destruction and unfortunate deaths that have gone along with it. Uh, but a lot of great points you brought up, and, and in fact, a lot of great points all of you have brought up today. And and I really appreciate all of your time being on here and joining us on, on this Nerd Out podcast. Um, I will note that you know, I every time. I take a little smile to my face when I'm listening to other shows and they talk about nerding out and I'm like, yeah, they're listening to the pod. They're one of our loyal listeners. So no, th this is a great form. I, I do appreciate you guys taking the time. And, and Joe, I want to thank you for uh, joining us this, this month and hopefully we can have you back um, in the future to talk more about this. Um, great insight with the, with all the venue management. Um, but as we wrap up this pod, um, I've got to be prepared for a couple of things. One, Jen's mom is, is sure to give me some notes that I'm going to get at the end of this podcast for me to go through. And then a, a friend of mine, Paul, who's been trying to get topics on, on the, the podcast. Unfortunately, we didn't get to him this time. Paul will probably try to get to him next month. Um, but I'll have those to look forward to. Um, but as we wrap up, uh, Joe, we, we like to uh, do a uh, plug or parting shot and this is your opportunity to kind of plug anything you like or or to leave on a good a good note um, and we'll just start with you and go around the room uh, well first thank you so much for inviting me to join uh, I'd be thrilled to to come back and uh, visit anytime uh, fascinating to hear uh, Bridget and Travis speak as well so uh, it, it was my pleasure uh, uh, as I said at the top of the uh, podcast, I'm um, working with the International Association of Venue Managers on the Venue Safety Security Committee. So if you have some specific things venue related and uh, safety and security, COVID, uh, anything from, you know, uh, mag and bags up front to credentialing, uh, we're, we're happy to sort of uh, take a look and help address that. Uh, we're, we're particularly interested in helping some of the mid cap to small cap uh, venues. Uh, obviously, the large cap venues have robust uh, teams in place to help them with their procedures. But if you've got something, feel free to, in, uh, to email us. Uh, and you can email us at vssc at iavm.org. Uh, you can also uh, catch me on LinkedIn, uh, Joe Levy, you'll see me. 
um, you'll you'll see all my credentials there connected to IABM. So if you've got something specific you want us to address or try to tackle, we're, we're happy to consider it. Great, thanks, Joe, and um, and we'll make sure we put some of this in the uh, show notes as well. So if you want to get some additional information on what Joe just talked about, uh, we'll have that in those notes there. Travis, plug or parting shot? Uh, no parting shots. Uh, again, it's a pleasure. Obviously, great to meet you, Joe. Always a pleasure to be on with Bridget. Um, as far as plug, um, we Welland do a, a daily update. Um, it rolls every 12, 12 hours of all the, the direct actions, protest activity stuff going on around the world. Uh, so if you are a, have retail locations, venues, whatever, um, you know, it, it is a great resource for, for, the, for the client base that they have, and they can automatically know every day what's, what's going on into the future as well. So need that, it's Travis.Moran at Wellen, W-E-L-U-N-D.com. And again, thanks so much. Yeah, great. To, to really appreciate it, Travis. And that's some great information about the activity that you guys are monitoring. I definitely highly recommend it. Um, Bridget, plug or parting shot? I have a total plug. So, <laughs> all right, go. <laughs> uh, my esteemed co panelists here today will be riding shotgun on our next Homeland Security Today law enforcement only webinars. Uh, Joe will be talking about venue threats with us at our September 30th webinar. And Travis will be talking about drone threats with us at our October 21st webinar. So be there because it will be awesome. Yeah, those webinars are, are, are really great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bridget, you haven't invited me back for one yet in a while. I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit of a complex, but they're great webinars and, and highly informative. And and so I guess as the host, it's my, my last plug or pardon shot. I, I'm just going to say one thing here, and it's related to Insider Threat Awareness Month. And if you're not aware, September has been designated as National Insider Threat Awareness Month. And, and this is, we haven't talked much about it, but this is a huge threat to uh, governments and, and corporations around the world. And, and I, I, Unfortunately, just to talk about some of the challenges that individuals have with insider threats is I, I know of an individual who uh, was a coworker of mine who uh, I did business travel with and then who ultimately wound up working with me and for me uh, in a different capacity. And this individual um, did ultimately uh, defect to another country. Um, it would be one that, that the United States would not necessarily consider a friend. Um, and in doing so, took uh, information sensitive to, to the government with her. And, and I say that only because I, I want to just express, you know, the indicators that came up while, you know, while I knew this individual. Um, it, it's easy to, to swipe away. It's easy to rationalize in your head. It's, it's easy to say, oh, but they're, they're really a good, loyal um, employee, they're good, loyal citizen, they would never do something like that. I, there's implied trust when you work in so, certain positions. And, and so you kind of blind yourself to it. And I really want to make people aware, and I'll, I'll put the resource in the, uh, the show notes as well, but there are a lot of indicators that can, you know, tip off insider threat behaviors and activities. 
and it's really important that we know those behaviors and not that just we recognize them, but we talk to them, talk to people about them and escalate those concerns to our uh, managers or supervisors or the appropriate reporting authorities, the FBI or, or within our own channels, because you never know. And, and I, you know, as time goes by and you have the moment to reflect, you can really see that you did miss some of those things. I, it's not just me, it was several uh, other coworkers who felt the same way. And, and I just really wanna make sure that we, we stress Insider Threat Awareness Month. I, I think it's incredibly important, especially as, as corporations look to steal intellectual property and, and they look in, in, you know, steal research and development efforts it's never been more important. And so please, uh, I'll put all that information in the show notes, but back to the group, I really appreciate everyone being here. It was a great discussion um, and I thank you for your time. And, and with that, uh, we'll bid you adieu. Thank you everyone. Have a great thank day. You. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Dave. I wanted to come back real quick and promote some of the Gate 15 podcast channel offerings that we have out. Last week, Jennifer Lynn Walker published the, the latest cybersecurity evangelist. Next week, Andy Jabor heads up the latest Gate 15 interview. And then the gang all comes back together after that with Jarena, Andy, Jen, and I for the risk, Gate 15 Risk Roundtable. You can find any of us on the major podcast platforms, or you can feel free to drop us a line at podcast at gate15.global. Thanks, and stay safe.